0: Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, editor in chief of Eureka Report and, of course, finance presenter on the ABC and columnist for New Daily.
1: And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review.
0: And we are The the Money Money Cafe. Cafe. And uh, James, you're in Sydney.
1: I am in Sydney, yes.
0: it's a long way to go to get away from get out of paying me twenty bucks.
1: <laughs> oh no, I would never Welsh on a bet. Uh congratulations to um you and Monique Ryan on your uh on your victories. It yeah. it, it was a teal wave.
0: It certainly um, was a teal wave and Monique uh Ryan beat Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, so that's uh, that's a big deal.
1: Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. you did, did it pan out largely as you expected, Alan?
0: The whole election or just Kuyong?
1: Well, Kuyong obviously did. But, um,
0: <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
1: uh, did, did the sort of whole election pan out as you expected?
0: Pretty much. Uh, um, yeah, look, I mean, I was a bit burnt from last time because I, in 2019 I wrote my um, – a weekend briefing for the new for Eureka report on the Saturday of the election campaign and said it's going to be a labor victory, and you know just the whole thing about how labor's going to win and this is this is what to expect, and of course they lost, so I was a bit wary of kind of being too too firm with my predictions yeah. this time yeah uh, but uh, yeah, I did think um i mean I look, I thought it was there's a fair chance of a hung parliament um or at least uh labor governing in minority but um uh, I think they might end up with a majority.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. I, I live on the border of um, uh, Menzies and Deakin in uh, Melbourne's eastern suburbs, two formerly pretty safe seats. Michael Sukar was in Deakin and uh, Menzies was Kevin Andrews' seat and, and he was sort of handing over notionally to this guy, Keith Woolahan. Both of the seats are still in doubt. Um,
0: Which one are you in?
1: Uh, I'm in Menzies. Um and so uh, I sort of, well, I, I didn't vote because I had COVID, so I, I postal voted, um, thinking, well, this is you know my postal vote's not going to matter, but <laughs> now subsequently someone someone could be waiting for it could, to um to see what happens. So, um, it, it's just amazing in in Melbourne how you know not only have not only have so many seats gone Labor, but Obviously, all seats have gone to women, with the exception of possibly um, deacons. So it, it's uh, it, it's it's a big change, and you know women I reckon, generally make better decisions than men. I reckon. So I reckon if the
0: Teals, I reckon if the Teals had stood for um, uh, stood in Higgins and Aston, they would have won those as well, but they didn't run a candidate yeah. in those yeah. in those two seats. Tudge won Aston, and the Labor Party won Higgins off. Um, uh, Katie Allen. Now you know that's amazing. You know that Higgins has gone to Labor. Yeah, yeah. that's one thing for a teal independent like Monique Ryan, who's kind of uh, a little bit conservative. Um, for her to win kuyong that's that's a big deal. But even you know Labor winning Higgins, dear idea. Oh mm. So yeah, I think it's amazing.
1: Well, one thing I've been thinking about a, a bit in the last. You know, since the since election day, if Labor gets to a majority government, which looks pretty likely, is does that limit the impact that the teal independents in the lower house have? Of
0: course, yeah, if they have not to power. And, and sure. in and in a way, what what are they going to spend the next three years doing? Well, just just what Zali Steggall and Helen Haynes have been doing um, for the last three years, which is, you know, speaking and being a being a voice yeah making themselves heard you know
1: and and, and i guess trying to uh, get wins for their local, their electorate w- w- which is something you know yeah. Yeah, that that not every parliamentarian's in there to get i guess that, that, that you know when, when you're in a party mm-hmm. you've got other agenda as a, or an additional agenda so
0: well also i think the other thing to bear in mind james is that this is a longer term project by mm-hmm. um by the community movement, as you might call it, and also Climate 200, the money-raising organisation that's run by Simon Holmes Court. I mean, they've raised, for this election, they raised $12 million from 11,000 donors um, and they stood 23 or 22 candidates and I think they've got up six of them. Yeah. They're going to they're uh, redouble their efforts for 2025. They're going to raise more money, I reckon. They'll, they'll get more money for 2025. They'll run more candidates. Um, the ones that have won, like Monique Ryan, Zoe Daniel, Allegra Spender, they'll stand again and they'll be very hard to beat um, unless they mark it up in the next three years, which they probably won't. So they'll be hard to beat. They'll probably hang on. So I reckon 2025 there'll be more of them.
1: Yeah, well, I think there'll definitely be more candidates for sure. I mean,
0: and but more more independence. I, you know, yeah, I think twenty twenty five we look, we are looking at uh, minority government.
1: C- can the liberals um, win back some of the territory
0: they've given up? Well, only only if they try to win them back. I mean, the t- the question is, wh- you know, what are the liberals going to do now? Yeah, um, uh, if they. Clearly, if they move to the right, as a lot of people are advising them to do, they won't win back Keon, Goldstein, Higgins, Wentworth, those seats, yeah. um, and they'll lose, they'll lose more of them like uh, Aston um, and Menzies and Deakin if they don't pick those up. So, I mean, I think, um, you know, it uh, uh, depends what the Liberals do now. It's yeah. going to be a very uh, interesting and an important process, really, for Australian for Australian politics.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: And what do you think absolutely. the big challenges are for Labor now? What are they? I mean, are they, they're talking about how, uh, naturally, I mean, all governments coming in, they say, think the budget's much worse than you thought it was. Yes. So I it, say that. It,
1: it's a bit like Alan when you get the new CEO and uh, th- they do a big series of write offs to, to sort yeah. of uh, <laughs> make to the decks. Clear the decks, that's right um but but I think those challenges are pretty real like we've seen this morning the um the new uh electricity price movements will will be about five and a half percent in in New South Wales for households, eight percent in queensland uh five percent in victoria so the cost of living pressures I think are pretty real and moving pretty quickly um you know it's for me it's this big question about inflation like what can what what levers are there levers that the government the new government can pull quickly to help tame inflation and help take some pressure off the rba uh, from raising rates you know if if we see if if we see a series of you know 6 to 8 rate rises over the next 12 months uh, that's going to put a fair bit of strain on household budgets um, from mortgage payments in addition to whatever we're seeing in terms of cost of living. So that's, that, that, that's going to create the economy could look quite different uh, in, in 12, 18 months time. Uh, would be my point. Um, and that certainly could could make it harder for labor to bring in some of the policy changes that they want to want to make. I don't know. I don't know what you think. Uh, you know, has Chalmers been dealt a pretty tough hand?
0: Uh, oh yeah, well look look at the budget. I mean, the the deficit they've got. The um, so there's just a limit to what they can do. Um, yeah. You know, uh, when they've got their promises, there's 19 million. No, sorry, 19 billion dollars worth of promises, which are offset by 11 and a half billion dollars worth of savings over four years. And I think that they'll they'll obviously do those. So there's but, – but that's a um, net sort of increase to the deficit, mm. um, you know, and I, there's no way that Labor's going to kind of have a big retrenchment of government spending um, to, to try to balance the budget or something this, this, uh, that's out of the question. So, you know, uh, and there's nothing they can do about prices um, – there's not much the Reserve Bank can do really, except crunch the economy with interest rates going up. I mean, putting up interest rates isn't going to do anything with uh, about electricity prices, is
1: it? No, 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 absolutely. Not.
0: Um, and as you say, that's that's happening now, and that's going to add to inflation. I mean, I suppose the the Labor Party could do things like make childcare free, or you know, when when childcare was made free during the during the pandemic, that sort of led to a big drop in inflation at yeah. the time. So maybe yeah. they could do something like that. Yes, but, and that,
1: that that would have productivity offsets. Obviously, it has a big cost, but... Uh, yeah, that's
0: right. But look at the cost that has to the budget. They probably can't do it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And what, what are you expecting to see on climate? Uh, it's sort of the big the big question, and, and we've got this uh, energy security crisis going on around the world. I mean, some of the stories you hear from Europe and, and even America uh, uh, about... Just getting the availability of energy at the moment are, are pretty worrying. Um, yeah. where, where do we get to on climate? Do you think?
0: Well, um, the Labor Party's Labor government said they want to legislate their forty three percent cut in emissions by twenty thirty, uh, which means it's got to go through the Senate. Uh, they won't have control of the Senate. They might have control of the Lower House, but they won't have control of the Senate. Senate. They'll have to negotiate with the Greens. And I remember in uh, two thousand and nine when when the Labor Party had its um, uh uh no in 2010 sorry after the um uh, uh after the labor party tried to legislate the, the um the emissions trading scheme um, the um the, the greens voted against it um or was that the liberal party anyway the the greens voted against they did, um, yeah. an emissions trading scheme labor scheme yep yeah, you're right which um, they thought wasn't strong enough. Yeah. Uh, and the, so the question is whether they're going to do the same thing again, really, whether mm. the Greens will block the 43% reduction because the Greens policy is for 75% reduction by 2030, yeah. which is a yeah. long way from 43 Yes. So it's going to be very interesting to see what the Greens do, whether they kind of say, okay, wave through the 43 try to, you know, Argue for it to go to seventy five, or whether they block the to forty three, or or maybe or they 80, find a middle
1: ground. You know, 50 maybe they find a middle ground and
0: agree yeah. on fifty or sixty or something. Yeah, yeah. Um By twenty thirty, so uh, you know that's where the kind of discussion, I suppose, the the full yeah, so negotiation is going to take place. And
1: the overlay with um energy security is going to be fascinating. I, I, geez, it's a tough issue to resolve. I mean, the, the, this this world gas Con- conference has been going on in Korea this week, and you know you, you can see the the gas industry's got a pep in its step, um, as they sort of effectively argue that you know you need us. <laughs> I guess is the way they they'd say it. You know, we, we 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 don't have enough gas. We need a lot more gas than we've got. Now, Alan, you you raised a a really interesting point. Uh, about the election, what what royal commissions are required now? Um, what, what, well, what's on your hit list? I, hit I'm list still number- scarred by the banking royal commission, Alan. I, I sat in that courtroom for you know months on end, and, and seems to be a bad joke now. But but uh, what, what do you reckon we should look at?
0: Um, oh well, I think there's got to be a royal commission into um, the pandemic response uh, yeah. and what lessons. Can be learnt for the next pandemic. Yeah. I think there should be a royal commission into climate change uh, to achieve some sort of try and achieve some sort of consensus about what needs to be done and, and actually put everything on the table. Yeah. Get everyone to have their opinion and then somebody come in, you know, some some retired judge or something to say, okay, this is the this is the community's thinking on it and this is what's needed. Um, and also, here's the science, you know. So there's that. I reckon there should be a royal commission into um, uh, all of the rorts that the previous government uh, undertook, sports rorts, and all the spending, and you know what was going, what's all that, what was going on there. Hmm. So uh, yeah, look, I think there could be three simultaneous royal commissions. <laughs> um, do, do you think?
1: Do you think those first two uh, royal commissions are perhaps more less? Um, Aggressive than the ones we've seen recently, like a bit more open. You know, climate change. I guess what I'm saying is, is the aged care and the banking royal commissions. The starting point has been these sectors are rotten. Um, with the pandemic response and uh, the and a climate change one, do, do we start from a bit more with an open, bit more of an open mind? Like we're not trying to put heads on sticks here, but what we're we're just trying yeah. to figure out the way forward.
0: I suppose um, the, the purpose of a Royal Commission is to uh, examine people under oath, Yeah, um, which is sort of, I suppose, fundamentally adversarial. Do we need something adversarial in relation to climate change and the pandemic? Possibly not. Maybe you could just have an inquiry um, that's uh, not particularly judicial. Maybe you could do that. Um, So whether it needs to be a Royal Commission or not, I don't know, but there needs to be some sort of examination, it seems to me. Um, I mean, I I think Royal Commissions are pretty well, you know, well-founded in Australia. There's a good sort of history of them and everyone sort of understands how it works. Yeah,
1: yeah. So uh, I, I, I think certainly, you know, extracting the lessons from the pandemic's a a good idea. I mean, and and yes, obviously there were stuff-ups and there were things that Australia did well. So I I just, you know, I think you'd want to go into it sort of saying, let's actually get a playbook for next time and not sort of waste this opportunity rather than saying, you know, let's figure out who's stuffed up and try and embarrass them.
0: Um, Well, yeah, look, I'm I'm not against embarrassing the people who stuffed up, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. There's a few people who stuffed up.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. No, fair enough. Fair
0: There's enough. a few um, few questions we got. Maybe we should get into them.
1: Yeah, do you want to start?
0: Okay, Philip says, love the show. Just thought it'd be interesting to get your perspective on US Masters Residential, a fund set up with Australian dollars in 2011, when we were parity to the dollar, to buy property in New York City. When prices have gone up significantly over that period. Should be worth at least what people originally put in, i.e. $1.80 per unit at inception, and now looks to be sold for 22 cents. Surely the advisors' managers' skimming fees can't explain such a disastrous performance. Can- oh, well, um, I think what do you reckon? Have you is- kept an eye on this?
1: Yeah, so I think, I think the answer is largely yes, Philip, the, 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 the performance of the managers and advisors does explain what's happened to the masters trust this was a Dixon advisory firm and obviously Dixon struck a, a fair bit of trouble the management company um, th- this this was a fund that had a, a really um, interesting structure whereby Dixon provided a lot of the services to the trust so they would find a uh, they would find a property they would renovate the property they would market the property and and a lot of those services Dixon was providing itself and of course being paid for it um, so the 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 sort of failure and confidence in this uh, residential trust is is largely to do with the way it's been managed so uh, and and as as Philip says the the dollar 80 has turned into something a lot less um
0: what a disaster! Are you saying that? I mean, Philip's asking whether the fees are responsible for that decline in in value. Are you saying that's right that it is yeah, the fees, that, that or it's just right. that they just that they were hopeless managers?
1: Well, it was it was it was poorly managed, but a lot of the a lot of what was poor poor about the management was that they had a structure where this vertically integrated structure where the management vehicle took a lot of fees, a lot of fees out, out for doing things like renovations and that sort of thing.
0: Right.
1: So it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a cautionary tale, I guess.
0: And, and Dixons have gone to God, right?
1: Yeah, yep. Yep, that's,
0: that's, that's right. <laughs> They're pushing up daisies.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm. Deservedly uh, so. Yes, indeed. Dylan asks, uh, as the dust settles from the federal election, it looks like the LNP has been devastated, with a 6% drop in their primary vote and a loss of their core liberal base in key seats. It seems the LNP will need to do some drastic soul-searching on how to win those back. What do you believe is next for the LNP, and do you believe the coalition will be able to move politically without tearing itself apart? Oh, I guess Peter Dutton's next
0: is the short answer, Alan. Yes, um, and you've got to look at the Liberal Party rather than the Coalition, um, I reckon, because the Liberal Party is the one that needs to get its act together. Um, they probably won't break the, break the Coalition up, but they need to, the Liberal Party needs to redefine itself. Yeah. Um, and figure out wh- who they are and are they the, the sort of uh, extreme right party, the uh, sky after dark and the IPA and everybody would like them to be, or are they somewhere in the middle? Are they a mentee's type of centre party? So they've got to figure that out. And um, I kind of I wrote this morning in the New Daily, and I think it may be true that Dutton, Peter Dutton, is a relatively pragmatic politician, and so he's going to try and do rather rather than chase ideology, I would suspect that Dutton will chase votes. Um,
1: yeah.
0: Um, well, uh, we'll see. I mean, it, story, it, it, it sounds like an obvious thing to say, but you can't assume that with you know with, with a lot of these conservatives yeah. that they yeah. you know they're kind of so um, entrenched in their ideology that they kind of sometimes you think well they're not actually trying to get votes they're just trying to trying to be pure yeah in their own light. Well, um, contrarian,
1: so, it seems sometimes I know. um do, do you think Dutton i mean surely Dutton and and the liberal party executive would be looking at one nation and clive palmer's uh vote and and how it faltered and and thinking well that's that's not the way we want to go we're we're not going to retain government going down that path no it's a pretty easy decision isn't
0: it i wouldn't think so
1: yeah
0: i mean they've got to get these Hardland Liberal seats back. Kuyong yeah, Goldstein, yeah. Higgins, you know Wentworth. I've got to get those seats back.
1: Yeah. Well, there was that great um graphic from Casey Briggs on the ABC saying the Liberals no longer have a seat that overlooks Sydney Harbour. I mean, surely that's you, you, you got to fix something like that if you're going to win the next election.
0: Isn't that amazing?
1: Yeah, crazy, isn't it?
0: <laughs> Garth says I've most of my money in old school LICs, utilising their DRPs dividend. Uh, reinvestment programs and which I uh, add to whenever I have spare cash. I'm not a fan of how ETFs are structured and also believe in buying into companies not codes. Having said that, I do realize that my portfolio is heavily weighted with financials. I'm looking to diversify. I see the discounts currently available in the US specifically in Nasdaq as interesting uh, interesting opportunities that fit my investment Goals. Given my aversion to ETFs, I would like to invest directly in these equities using my Comsec account uh, through Pershing LLC, which is, I guess, I don't know. I'm not a Comsec customer, so I guess that's what Comsec's using something called Pershing. Are you able to offer any insights in the lo- on the logistics of investing in US stocks? Uh, well, not really. Oh, I mean, you've got to buy US dollars first, I guess, and then yeah. away you go. <laughs>
1: I think the thing to say, Garth, is it's a hell of a lot easier than it was five years ago. Um, Comsec uh, and a lot of the online brokers, the you know the the stock spots and the stakes, they they will let you um, buy buy uh, individual companies directly. Often the universe of uh, stocks you can buy is somewhat limited you know I, I, I don't know there's 5,000 stocks on the US exchanges you can't buy them all but there's a fairly large list and I'm sure some of those beaten down nasdaq stocks that you like will be on that list so uh, do do a bit of googling go uh, on the online brokers and explore the comsec app app you'll be able to you'll be able to go direct through those
0: methods yes and the only thing I'd say is Garth, be a little bit careful because it's possible the discounts haven't stopped growing.
1: <laughs> no, that was a, I had a piece yesterday in the paper about th- this idea of growth traps, which, are, you know, everyone knows value traps. They're sort of things that look cheap and continue to get cheaper. Um, but the, the idea of growth traps is quite interesting too, that, that these companies, these big growth companies, can continue to disappoint for quite some time. Uh, and their valuations can reflect that. So, yeah. uh, yes, be a bit wary. I guess it's about time frame, isn't
0: it? I mean, the, the value. I suppose the point is the valuations of these stocks are still quite high. Um, yeah, they're absolutely. Not, they're not historically cheap yet. No. no. Are discounts they might be to cheaper they, than they
1: were, but they're not historically cheap.
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, Okay, your turn. All
1: right, Josh has a, has got a quick question for you and a longer, slightly longer one. I'm, I'm, glad, Josh
0: can... is, I'm, I'm glad Josh is a listener of Money Cafe. Yeah, so I, yeah.
1: yeah <laughs> Any update on the efficacy of your medical cabinets, cannabis? Cannabis. Um, Do you want
0: to answer oh, right. that one first? Uh, well, um, look, uh, yeah, I've been taking it for a while. It's it's look, it's uh, it's not a miracle cure for me. I mean, not it doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. It used to work for me in my 20s um, <laughs> quite solidly, but I don't know. In my, se- my 70s, it doesn't seem to be working so so well.
1: Okay. All right. All right. His, his, his more serious question is that he uh, understands there's government guarantees of up to 250000 for term deposits held with a bank. What about a similar amount of money invested in diverse ETFs, say, through Shares or Vanguard? Are there any risks that these fund managers go out of business and investors' funds are at risk? Uh, yes. Is there? Well, of course, there's a risk. I mean, the, the, there's the, well, what I'm saying is there's no government guarantee.
0: Oh no, there's no government guarantee. But if you if you buy if you invest in an ETF through BetaShares or Vanguard, uh, and if BetaShares goes broke, then somebody takes over, Somebody else takes over the ETF. It's not as if you lose your money. You're not investing in beta shares itself. You're no, that's true.
1: Yes, you're, sorry. You're yes. investing
0: in a bunch of companies yep. um, through but using beta shares. So what happens when a fund manager, which is essentially what beta shares and Vanguard are, when a fund manager goes broke, their funds get taken over by somebody else and they just continue on. Yes.
1: But you do have the dual risk that um, the, 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 the underlying Excuse me. The underlying shares of the ETF will go down, and so th- w- what I'm saying is there's no gar- government guarantee over that. So oh, no. it- it's not cash-like.
0: No, certainly not. Exactly.
1: So so don't treat it like cash. You can't treat yeah. it like cash. No, no.
0: Uh, Ross says I'm interested in your thoughts on investing in water. It appears there are a few avenues for investing: trading shares, take-and-use license trading, ETFs, buying stocks with water portfolio. Do you have any insights? Um. Not especially. Do you have any insights? No, around? no.
1: I mean, I guess what I'd say is it's an area where that alternative managers have got into and there's an increasing number of alternative managers. Um, infrastructure managers have sort of played in that space. So you probably need a specialist who knows a little bit more about it.
0: Um, it there's there's one listed water um Security, I guess you'd call it, called Duxton Water. Its code is D20. Right. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's gone from $1.30 to $1.80 in the past 12 months. Uh, so it's up t- sort of 20% in 12 months, which, is me- which means it's outperformed the All Ordinaries or ASX200 quite handsomely over the period. And it looks, it looks like a solid sort of cons- defensive investment to me. Uh, water. Um, so look, yeah. you, I don't think you'd sort of invest in water with the idea of doubling your money in 12 months or something. It's a sort of, um, it's a solid inve- uh, uh, defensive investment.
1: And it is a real asset, isn't it? Yeah. yeah and it's a scarce idea. asset.
0: The thing about water is, yeah. you know, it's yeah. in Australia or at least it's scarce. So if you invest in water in some way, um, you know, you're investing in something that's quite scarce and it's probably quite defensive.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think th- this is more of a spray than a question, but we'll, we'll go with it. Last week in discussion with James Thompson, you seemed to back the teal candidates, especially Monique Ryan. You certainly thought a hung parliament would not be negative for the ASX. How could this not be the case? Left-wing climate enthusiasts like yourself, question mark, holding the major parties to ransom and demanding stronger emissions reductions than most parties, most electorates, and most cam- companies agree with... How can a minority of independents representing their electrics be good for democracy and the economy when the majority of the electorates have rejected these policies time and again? Careful what you wish for. We will end up with radical climate policies and reduced super returns.
0: What
1: Um, do you make of that, Alan?
0: Well, look, um, climate enthusiasts, uh, it's a question of whether you believe the science or not. If you believe the science, then you want something done about climate change because we're heading for disaster. I mean, it's really... I think this business about climate change being a left or right wing um, issue is completely rubbish. I mean, God. And the, and the fossil fuel industry, you know, 30 years ago managed to turn it into a left-right issue. That's what they wanted to do. I thought the way to preserve our fossil fuels for as long as possible would be to make it left-right and then to fund the right wing, which they've done. And, um, you know, we continue to fall into it. Into their bloody trap by making it left or right. Um, it's a it's a question, simply a question mark of science. I mean,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: If you believe the science, uh, you believe the science on medicine and you know COVID or whatever. Then believe the science on climate because all the scientists are pretty much agreed. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: just, j- just to Mark's point about super funds, I-, I thought there was a really interesting moment yesterday with uh, you know AGLs having this big demerger vote, um, and, and Hester came out and said they're going to vote against the demerger. They think it's going to be bad for members' returns and bad for uh, bad for the environment. Uh, I thought what was particularly interesting, and I sort of wrote this about. Hester was prepared to run towards the fire. I mean, their comment was super funds can't abandon big emitters. They need to, they need to help big emitters make this transition. So I think we've seen this switch away from divestment. Um, you know, just, just sort of selling these stocks and and washing your hands of the problem. We're now seeing, I think, the super funds are a good example of how they've, forget about the left and right stuff. This is a big problem. It needs big solutions and big capital. And we've all got to be involved. I actually think that's quite a sort of healthy place to get to. Um,
0: hmm.
1: and, and, and you know, that, that's the way super funds, I mean, Mark mentioned super funds. That's the way super funds are thinking about it. That they know that their returns will be terrible if if climate change is, uh, is bad. So that's the way they're thinking. Yep. Um, I might ask this last one because I think it's directed at you, uh, Alan. Uh, Luke says, I watched your segment on housing affordability on 7.30 report this week. I believe there's one element that no one talks about with regards to home ownership, and that's expectation. No one seems to want to move further than three minutes from mum's nurse strings. I'm 45 now. My first house was a pile of rubbish in a small regional area. I did it up over five years, moved closer to the city and so on. Why do so many people expect a house in the best street and close to mum and dad? Why can't young people work away at home ownership, become more mobile and build up their expectations as the year progress? I believe that's the I deserve everything now mentality. I also believe a staggered stamp duty, lower in regional areas, may help the regions, may help the regions and with
0: affordability. What do you reckon? Well, yeah, look, as long as it applies to everyone else, I want my kids around me So, um, and my grandchildren. So, the, so yeah. everyone else can move out to the regions as far as long as my kids stick around.
1: <laughs>
0: is, that, uh, is that too selfish?
1: Well, look, I guess perhaps the other thing to think about is is the jobs are much more city-focused than they once were, um, you know, even 10, 15 years ago. the yes we're seen a swing back in really recently to uh, uh, living in the bush but it's not the employment opportunities aren't are mainly in cities and people need to live near those employment opportunities so it's a hard balance to get right isn't it yeah
0: and so, and seriously though one of the I think it's true that one of the solutions to um, housing affordability is a proper decentralization policy um, and i I believe. Uh, I, I can't remember all the details of it but i think that um, Whitlam had a, a big push towards decentralization trying to trying to encourage the creation of uh, major regional cities um, which was cancelled by fraser as soon as he as soon as he uh, became prime minister in 1976 so and there's never ever since then there's never really been a proper de- decentralization policy and and that involves fast transport, um, proper infrastructure in the regional areas and possibly uh, and making sure that jobs are available in those uh, regional areas and also possibly, as this as this guy Luke suggests, some sort of stamp duty incentives maybe, um, certainly some sort of focused attempt to help people live in the regional areas I think is a good idea and is one of the solutions
1: yeah, to although, although affordability. Yeah. Story- the, the stories you hear at the moment, Alan, about the rental crisis in the regions, it sounds awful. I mean, there's just no housing stock out there.
0: I know, so, that's right. They've got to build some more houses.
1: Yeah, that, that's the challenge with any stamp duty. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's not so much about wanting to, even if you want to live in the regions, it's not easy to do right now.
0: Yeah, well, one of the things that came out in that piece I did for 730 was um, that the the shortfall of public housing stock... Public housing paid for by the government, the shortfall is um, at least 450,000 units. Now, the Labor Party's got a policy that will build 30,000 over five years. Um, It's a drop in the bucket. I mean, they just need to, uh, you know, they, they need to get back to building a lot of public housing. Yeah. And particularly in the regional areas.
1: Yes, we'll we'll see if that we'll see if that uh <laughs> that, that's a potential policy in a in a constrained budgetary environment.
0: Exactly. Well, we better let you get back on with your day in Sydney, James. I'm sure you've got a um, busy day ahead of you.
1: Thanks, Alan. I'm hosting a fund managers panel in a in an hour or so, so it should be fun.
0: Okay, well good luck. Thanks for listening, everybody, to today's episode of Money Cafe. We've been on the Zencaster remote. We haven't been in the cafe because JT is in Sydney, and um, uh, Stephen Maynard will be back next week in the cafe, so send in the question and we'll answer it. Um, the email is themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. So until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report.
1: And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review.
0: See you next week.